This is a Scream Queen production. episode of So Dead. I'm your host, Jen Carpenter. Happy True Crime Tuesday. We are officially 11 billion days into the pandemic at this point. As you're listening to this episode, I am possibly slash likely in the throes of misery because if today is Tuesday, that means yesterday was Monday, which means that's when I got my second COVID vaccine. And I hear that one's a doozy. I know that people feel all types of ways about the vaccine. I'm not here to talk to you about that. I'm not a doctor or a scientist. A scientist? I'm not multiple. I'm I'm not even one scientist. I'm definitely not multiple scientists. Um, But I do believe in doctors and scientists. And I'm just really, really, really tired of being stuck at home all the time. I want to get back to living life, and if getting stabbed in the arm a couple times and feeling shitty for a few days is the way to get there, then bring it on. I'm kind of feeling like Ariel from The Little Mermaid at this point in my life. Like, I want to be where the people are. Uh, I want to go to restaurants and movies and parties. Remember parties? I used to hate them hate them with a passion. And I can't wait to hate them again. But right now I would love to go to a party to get dressed up in a pretty dress, go dancing. Well, no, (laughs) I don't dance. So I would not be dancing and I don't drink. So I'm not really that good of a time at a party, but I still want to go to one, you know, eat, socialize, laugh, just, (sighs) I miss them. I miss parties. And here comes the segue, friends. You ready for it? Today, I'm going to tell you about a gal who liked to slip on her little black dress and go to parties so much, she killed literally her entire family so that she could keep going to funerals. Hold on to your smelling salts, kids, because it's time for another dead time story. And this one was actually a listener selection. Uh, My patrons on Patreon have benefits at different tiers. The highest tier is the Super Freak. And at the Super Freak level, you get to choose an episode topic. So this was chosen by, I think, maybe the original Super Freak. I think she might have been the very first one. Shelby Morley, thank you so much for your support and thank you for your suggestion This has been on my radar. I know about this case, but I didn't know about this case, and it is quite a wild one. So thank you, Shelby. This one is for you. Picture it. Northern Michigan at the turn of the 20th century. Serious question, real quick, for my non-Michigan peeps. Does every state have an area they call up north? 
It seems like everybody should write because no matter where in the country a state is located, there's always a northern end, right? Um, But you guys will have to tell me. I seriously, I don't know. I don't even know what I'm talking about at this point in the morning. Um, What I do know is that here in Michigan, we call the northern part of the state up north, as in, oh, sorry, can't make it to your birthday party. We're going up north this weekend. Or, hey, can you water my plants? I'm going up north for a week. And up north is a wide-ranging term. It's an area that starts somewhere different for pretty much everyone. For me, as a kid, up north meant the Fife Lake, Kalkaska area. And for those of you who think I'm just making up words right now, no, I'm not. Those are real places. I know because I've been there. When I was little, my mom had quite a bit of family in that area, so when we would go up north, we were always going to Fife Lake or Kalkaska to visit family. Kalkaska is both the name of a county and a small village within that county. It's located like, so if you're looking at Michigan as a mitten, which everybody does, Kalkaska is kind of towards the top of the ring finger, so north almost west part of the state, I guess. Uh, The village of Kalkaska has about 2,000 residents. The entire county only has about 17,000 residents. So not a lot of people at all, but a lot of forests and a lot of lakes and apparently a lot of trout because Wikipedia tells me that Kalkaska is home to the National Trout Festival. So there you go, friends. Kalkaska is just to the east of everyone's favorite up north town, Traverse City, and the much more popular Cherry Festival. Remember festivals? I miss festivals too. Anyway, kind of smack dab between Traverse City and Kalkaska, just a little to the south, is the teeny tiny baby town of Fife Lake, which is a village of less than 500 people today, way less back when we're going to be talking here. Fife Lake, Kalkaska, up north, as remote and rural as I recall the area being, it was much more middle of nowhere in the 18s and 1900s, in the 18 and 1900s, which is when our story takes place. Enter Mary Murphy McKnight, a woman that created her own fun out in the middle of nowhere at the ultimate expense of others. Mary was born in Canada in 1857 to Isaiah and Sarah Murphy. She was the eldest of nine children, five boys, and four girls. In 1870, when Mary was 13, she and her family emigrated to the U.S. and settled in Alpena, a small town in northeast Michigan. So if Kalkaska is at the tip of the ring finger, Alpena is at the tip of the index finger, kind of, sort of. Murphy, party of 11, settled in Alpena where Isaiah worked at a sawmill. Eventually, he purchased a plot of land in Kalkaska and the family relocated. After a couple years in Kalkaska, Mary decided she was more of an index finger girl than a ring finger girl, and she went back to Alpena on her own. She was still a teenager at the time, so she moved into a boarding house and she worked doing laundry for the other boarders. 
One of Mary's fellow boarders was a Dr. Louis Sergras, who sort of took Mary under his wing and taught her a bit about medicine and midwifery. She was never officially any kind of nurse or doctor, but she had some medical knowledge that uh, people in her rural community thought was thought <laughs> was helpful later on. Mary was a pretty girl, kind-hearted, popular with the fellas, and on April 19, 1876, when she was 19, she married J.D. Ambrose, a local painter 13 years her senior. But things were rough. In their first two years of marriage, Mary and J.D. lost three babies as infants, three babies, before having two daughters together. Minnie was born in 1878, and May was born in 1882, so the girls were about four years apart. In the summer of 1882, four-year-old Minnie went to stay with her grandparents in Monroe, Michigan, which is down by Detroit. So Alpena to Monroe is over a four-hour drive today. In the 1800s, it would have obviously taken much, much longer. So this wasn't just like an overnight visit at Mima and Papa's house. Minnie went to stay. She went to visit probably for a week or two, maybe even a little longer. Who knows? I don't know. With May being a newborn baby, that probably had something to do with it. You know, let sleep-deprived mom take care of the baby. Let Minnie go stay with grandma and grandpa and have fun for a week or two. But while Minnie was in Monroe, she came down with diphtheria, which is a disease that we don't have to worry about nowadays thanks to vaccines. Diphtheria is a lot like other flu-like viruses. It's contagious. It comes on gradually. It can be mild in some, deadly in others. It causes a fever, sore throat, and a cough in mild cases but can result in blocked airways and organ failure in severe cases. And for little Minnie Ambrose, it was deadly. J.D.'s parents contacted him when she got sick, but by the time he got to her, she was gone. Two years later, in 1884, Mary and two-year-old May were on the train headed to Saginaw to visit some friends when they both became so ill that they were removed from the train and rushed to the hospital. While Mary made a full recovery, baby May did not. Like her sister a couple years before her, May died. And also like her sister a couple years before her, diphtheria was named as the culprit. So by the age of 27, Mary Murphy Ambrose had lost five children, all five of her children. But at least she still had her husband, J.D., until she didn't. Three years after the Ambroses lost their last child, J.D. joined them at the family plot. He fell victim to a sudden, violent illness, and he passed within a few hours. He was just 43. At just 30 years old, Mary was a widow with no surviving children out of five. It didn't take her long to rebound, though. In 1887, the same year J.D. died, Mary remarried. She married her deceased husband's younger business partner, a very recent widower by the name of James McKnight. James and Mary were the same age. They were both 30. They'd both lost their spouses. Neither of them had any children. 
all of Mary's children had died, of course, but I don't believe that James and his first wife had children. At least there weren't any that I found record or mention of anywhere. So together, Mary and James moved to Grayling, which is another small up north town. Grayling is kind of right in the middle of northern Michigan, about 25 miles from Kalkaska. So it was much closer to Mary's family. Uh, For years, things were quiet, calm, peaceful, normal, northern Michigan life at the turn of the century. And then on the night of November 12th, 1898, 41-year-old James McKnight became violently ill after eating a dinner that Mary had cooked. Mary sent for the town doctor who rushed to the house and found James on his deathbed. Mary and the doctor watched in horror as James's body was rocked with spasms. His back severely arched, his arms and legs were seizing up, his throat was partially paralyzed. This went on for two days, these, these spasms or convulsions. But then somehow James started to improve. He sat up in bed. He had visitors. The doctor's still there this whole time, right? Um, he smoked his pipe. He joked about his mysterious illness and his brush with death. He was doing so well that the doctor left and returned to town, leaving the nights at home alone together for the first time since James's symptoms began. Later that same night, Mary contacted the doctor and told him that James had relapsed and died, and that it occurred so quickly she didn't even have time to call for help. So at 41 years old, Mary was now a two-time widow with five deceased children. She sold the property in Grayling, and she went back home. Her father had passed a few years prior in 1894, but her mother lived on a farm in Fife Lake with her disabled niece, so one of Mary's cousins, whose name was also Mary. Uh, And that was where Mary went. But everywhere that Mary went, death was sure to go. Yes, I came up with that. Yes, I'm unashamedly proud of it. So love it. Thanks. Uh, In early 1903, Mary's younger brother, John, and his new little family went to live on the Murphy Farm temporarily. They were building a new home on 40 acres nearby, and they needed a place to stay while they finished it up. John was 12 years Mary's junior, so he would have been 34 in 1903, whereas Mary was 46. John had a pretty little wife, Gertie, who was either 19 or 22 in 1903, depending on who you ask. So her birth certificate said one thing and her headstone said another. So we're not sure how old Gertie was, but she was young. And the couple's baby, Ruth, was about three months old at this time. So very little. On April 20th, 1903, Gertie left baby Ruth in Aunt Mary's care to go work on the new house. The events that followed left a family destroyed and a tiny northern Michigan town in the national spotlight. April 20th was a Monday. Late April in northern Michigan, well, (laughs) anywhere in Michigan really, is a total crapshoot. It could have been a 70-degree spring day or it could have been 30 degrees and snowing. Who knows? Nobody that's alive today and not Google apparently because I checked. Late that morning, Mary put baby Ruth down for a nap. When she went to check on her a few hours later, she found the infant blue and unresponsive. This was rural northern Michigan in the early 1900s, so there were no phones, there was no 911 to call. 
but there was nothing that could be done anyway. The youngest member of the Murphy family was gone, like many of her aunts, uncles, and cousins before her. Gertie and John, Ruth's parents, returned to the Murphy farm around noon, and they were told that Ruth must have become entangled in the blankets during her nap and suffocated. Gertie was hysterical, like any mother would be, upon learning that her child had died. John kind of suppressed his grief so that he could calm or try to calm his young wife, and once Gertie seemed to have settled down a little bit, he left her with his mother and sister, and he went into town to purchase a coffin for baby Ruth. When he returned, his sister Mary had even more bad news for him. They needed another coffin. Less than an hour after being told that his little baby daughter was gone, John Murphy was informed that his young wife had also died in the time that it took for him to go into town to buy a coffin. Can you even imagine, like, you leave for work in the morning, you come home for lunch, hey, by the way, your baby's dead, you leave to go buy a coffin for the baby, come home, what, maybe an hour later, hey, now your wife's dead too? Just wild. John's mother and sister told him that while he was gone, Gertie went into convulsions, likely brought on by her hysteria. She twitched and thrashed, her back arched violently, her face twisted into a sinister-looking snarl. Moments after the first seizure ended, another began. And then another. And then within about 20 minutes, young, healthy Gertrude Murphy was dead. The doctor didn't arrive until the following day. After taking statements from Mary and her mother, who were both home when Ruth and Gertie died, the doctor determined that Gertie died from shock following an epileptic fit, even though she didn't have epilepsy or a history of seizures. Ruth, the doctor said, died following spasms, with no cause for the spasms listed on the death certificate. The Murphy home was prepared for a traditional Irish wake, mirrors covered, clocks stopped, A single casket was brought into the parlor. Gertie was holding baby Ruth in her arms. The two would be buried in a single grave. It was a ghastly, heartbreaking scene, and one that would repeat itself in the Murphy home just a couple weeks later. On Saturday, May 2nd, so 12 days after Gertie and Ruth died, 66-year-old Sarah Murphy appeared at the doorstep of her nearest neighbor, Joe Battenfield, at 9 o'clock at night. She was frantic. Something was terribly wrong with her son, John. He needed help. So Joe rushed over to the Murphy farm and up the stairs to the same bedroom, the same bed where Gertie had died. He found his friend and neighbor in the throes of a violent convulsion. This scene was eerily reminiscent of exactly what had happened to Gertie. And just like Gertie, her husband died within minutes from the onset of his strange symptoms. After talking with the family, the doctor determined John died from shock following an asthma attack. John apparently had terrible asthma that often left him clawing at his throat and gasping for breath. The doctor figured that a lack of oxygen had caused the convulsions that led to his death. So this is now three members of the Murphy family, an infant, a woman in her late teens or early 20s, and a man in his early 30s all young and healthy, that were stricken by sudden spasms, convulsions, seizures, whatever you want to call them, and died shortly after. And this was the early 1900s when medicine wasn't modern, 
good. I don't know what word to use there. It, it wasn't good. Um, so there weren't a lot of tests that could be run to figure out what was killing them. Was it some sort of virus or a plague? Was it a curse on the family, perhaps? That's what many of the mourners at John Murphy's funeral feared as they whispered amongst themselves during his wake. What was going on at the Murphy farm? That was exactly what Kalkaska prosecutor Ernest C. Smith wanted to know. One person in particular drew his attention. 46-year-old Mary Murphy McKnight seemed all too happy to don her black taffeta morning gown and host yet another traditional Irish wake at her family home. So Ernest Smith started asking questions, and he found that the truth wasn't buried too far under the surface. When he questioned those who had been in and around the Murphy home at the time of the deaths, he found a common theme. All three of the deceased were under the care of Mary McKnight when their mysterious symptoms began. In fact, she was the last person seen with all three of them. A neighbor reported that baby Ruth was fussy and Mary gave her a tablet of some sort to calm her down. Multiple people saw Gertie's frantic state upon learning of Ruth's death and they heard her ask Mary to give her something to calm her and saw Mary hand her sister-in-law a tablet. John, too, was reported to have asked his sister for something to calm his nerves and was seen taking some sort of tablet before his convulsions began. And what, you ask, was in those tablets Mary was handing out like she was a human Pez dispenser? Strychnine. Strychnine is a highly toxic crystalline alkaloid, whatever that means, most often used as a pesticide to kill small animals like birds and rodents. It's been used for a very long time, since about the 1500s. But over time, we silly humans found other uses for it. It was discovered to be a stimulant, and it was used in very, very small doses to treat cardiac, respiratory, and digestive issues. It was also used to treat snake bites and opioid overdoses, among other things. So here's something terrifying that I found. This is from the website Access Pharmacy. It says, in 1982, 1982, like I was two, in 1982, at least 172 commercial products were found to contain strychnine, including 77 rodenticides, 25 veterinary products, and 42 products made for human use. 42 products made for human use contained strychnine in the 1980s. What the fuck? Strychnine comes from the plant Strychnos nux vomica. Vomica. If a plant literally contains the word vomit in its name, maybe don't eat it. Just, just a thought. Uh, the plant is native to Southern Asia and Australia, but was co-opted by the United States, of course. Um, and it was once available on drugstore shelves everywhere in pill and powder form. Strychnine is a member of the stimulant family that includes morphine, caffeine, nicotine, and cocaine, and it is actually believed to be the first instance of drug use at the Olympics. In 1904, a marathon runner by the name of Thomas Hicks won his marathon, but nearly died after consuming a concoction of strychnine, egg whites, and brandy. On purpose. Anyway, strychnine, those of us with true crime brains hear it and we instantly think poison, murder, 
Danger Will Robinson. But back in the early 1900s, it was used for a whole bunch of things, and most households had it, including the Murphy household. In fact, Joe Battenfield, remember him, the the neighbor that ran over and tried to help when John started having his convulsions? Joe told investigators that just a few days before John's death, he'd picked up five cents worth of strychnine at the local drugstore at the request of Mary McKnight. She told him she wanted to kill some field mice that had gotten into the cellar. And it wasn't uncommon for Joe to run errands for the Murphys. Mrs. Murphy was aging and she walked with a limp due to severe arthritis. Poor Mary was a two-time widow with a bunch of dead babies. And Mary's cousin that lived with them was disabled. So when Joe was going to go into town, he'd swing by the Murphy farm and ask, Hey, can I get you guys anything? Uh, And then he'd drop the items off on his way back home. So he knew there was strychnine in the Murphy house when John died. And authorities knew there was something that just wasn't quite right about the way John had died. Some of his symptoms didn't jibe with an epileptic seizure. For one thing, he was lucid throughout until he lost consciousness. So he was aware of what was happening to him, which is not the case in epileptic seizures. Can confirm from personal experience. Epileptic seizures start in the brain and cause the body to convulse. But in John's case, it was just his body that was convulsing and seizing up. He never actually lost his awareness. Also, after he died, his limbs remained rigid, which is not a thing in epileptic seizures. After the seizure's over, the body relaxes. But it is common in strychnine poisoning. So the dots connected themselves pretty easily. John's symptoms were more consistent with strychnine poisoning than an epileptic fit or an asthma attack. There was strychnine in the Murphy house at the time of his death, and Mary was reported to have given him a pill of some sort right before his convulsions began. But Mary insisted there was no strychnine in the house. She hadn't bought any in months, and that had been used up on the mice in the cellar. And she was just certain that John had died during an asthma attack. She'd seen it with her own eyes. Authorities called bullshit, and they decided to ask someone else how John Murphy died. John Murphy himself. On May 29, 1903, so a few weeks after John was buried, authorities had his body exhumed. Against Mary's wishes, of course. She'd even hired an attorney to try to stop the exhumation, saying that John had begged of her while on his deathbed, don't you ever let them dig me up. Why, why would someone who is convulsing violently, dying a very painful death, have the thought that, hey, they might want to dig me back up after I'm buried, don't let them? That doesn't even make any sense, Mary. Makes no sense. So John's body was removed from where it lay, buried beside his wife and baby, whose graves were also fresh. His stomach was removed, and it was sent to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor to be tested for strychnine. Prosecutor Smith was so certain that the test would come back positive, he didn't wait for the results before taking Mary into custody. On May 31, 1903, authorities tracked Mary down to the train station near Traverse City and placed her under arrest. She continued to maintain that she hadn't had strychnine in her possession for months. Authorities then reminded her that she'd had the neighbor buy her strychnine at the drugstore just a couple days before her brother's death, and then she was like, oh... Did I say I bought strychnine a few months ago? I meant a few days ago. My bad. Police kept Mary locked up while they waited 
for what today we would call a toxicology report. I don't think it was quite as scientific back then. Um, While she was in custody, authorities denied Mary visitors. Even her attorneys couldn't visit her. And she went on a hunger strike. She started losing a bunch of weight. So she was already in pretty rough shape when on June 3rd, the report came back from Ann Arbor confirming that John not only had strychnine in his system, but that he'd ingested enough of the poison to kill 12 men. 12. But Mary still wouldn't come clean. She had an explanation for every accusation, a story for every question. So authorities decided that in order to dig Mary's hole, they had to dig another very real hole. They had to exhume the bodies of Gertie and Ruth Murphy. Most of the crew involved in this ghastly process had never exhumed one body, let alone three in a matter of days. And the second Murphy grave was rough as it contained two sets of human remains, a young mother holding her infant daughter. Gertie and Ruth's stomachs were also shipped off to the University of Michigan for testing. While he awaited the results, Prosecutor Smith started looking into Mary's past, and what he found shocked not only the small northern Michigan town the Murphys called home, but the entire country. Mary Murphy McKnight hadn't had an easy time of it. She'd lost five children, two husbands, and then her brother, her sister-in-law, and her baby niece, all within a matter of days of each other. But between those ten deaths, there were others. Lots of others. Let's start with Mary's babies. The first three died in infancy. It was not uncommon for newborn babies to die during birth or shortly thereafter in the 1800s by any means, and there's no indication that Mary was responsible for those deaths. Her four-year-old daughter, Minnie, died while Mary was clear on the other side of the state, so Minnie was staying with her grandparents. Mary really couldn't have been involved because she was nowhere near the scene. And then when her younger daughter, May, died, both May and Mary came down with Uh, an illness that they said was diphtheria at the same time. So they were both very, very sick and hospitalized. Mary recovered. May didn't. Um, The symptoms of diphtheria and strychnine poisoning are really nothing alike. So it's just not likely. So even though Mary lost all five of her children, it's not believed that she actually killed any of them. But Those losses may have kind of gotten her addicted to the attention she received by being at the center of all of that grief and sadness. She was the pretty young woman in the fancy black dress, the subject of everyone's pity. And we talked about how Mary's first husband, J.D. Ambrose, died, right? I mean, kind of. I think I just said that he died of a sudden violent illness in 1887. Well, would you be surprised to hear that, out of the blue... J.D. began seizing and convulsing and a little while later was dead. Sound familiar? And remember how I mentioned that Mary married J.D.'s younger business partner, also recently widowed? James McKnight's first wife was very much alive when Mary went to stay with them following J.D.'s passing. In July of 1887, James's wife fell ill, suffering from a... Sudden onset of convulsions. Upon learning that Mrs. McKnight was ill, her sister, Jib Teeple, along with her husband and baby, went to tend to Mrs. McKnight. So 
She gets sick. Her sister, sister's husband, sister's baby all come to the house to take care of her. But the night that they showed up, Mrs. McKnight died. And the following day, baby people, um, they didn't give a a name, so just baby, um, Mrs. McKnight's little niece also died. So baby was fine, came from a complete other household to where her aunt was dying. And then the next day she dies while she's in the house. From what, you ask? A sudden onset of violent convulsions. Given how quickly Mary moved in on Mrs. McKnight's widower, it's easy to assume that she poisoned the OG Mrs. McKnight to take her place. Happens all the time. I watch the ID channel. I know. You know. And you could even say that she maybe poisoned her own husband for the same reason. Maybe Mary and James were having an affair and they wanted to be together, so they poisoned their spouses in a joint effort, or maybe she was obsessed with him, so she poisoned them both. Who knows? But why the baby? Why the baby? And why didn't the killing stop there? On May 3rd, 1892, Mary was visiting the family of her younger sister Margaret in Grayling when tragedy struck again. Shortly after Mary had tea with her 13-year-old niece Eliza, The healthy young girl began violently convulsing and died a short time later. Why poison your 13-year-old niece? Why? Nine months later, Mary was having tea with her sister Margaret, Eliza's mother, and another sister, Sarah. Mary and Margaret were close in age. They were only about three years apart, but Sarah was the youngest in the Murphy family. Well, not the youngest child. She was the youngest girl in the Murphy family, and she was 18 years younger than Mary. So she was more like a daughter or a niece than a sister. Sarah had recently gotten engaged, and she was telling her sisters all about her wedding plans when she began to, wait for it, violently convulse. She died a short time later. She was only 18. Again, why? Following Sarah Murphy's death in 1893, things were quiet until the death of Mary's second husband in 1898. His death we did talk about in detail, so you'll remember that he died a painful death. He was suddenly stricken by violent spasms after eating a meal that Mary had prepared for him. The doctor came, he began to recover, but as soon as that doctor left and left him alone with Mary, he relapsed and died. But wait... There's more. In 1900, a friend of the Murphy family's died during surgery. The woman's grandmother, Mrs. Schneeberger, was sick with grief. So Mary, the good friend that she was, went to care for the old woman. And guess what? Mrs. Schneeberger died a few days after Mary arrived. Not only that, but Mrs. Schneeberger's daughter died a few days after that. There were no witnesses who could describe their symptoms or what happened or how they died, so it's unknown whether the women died from a sudden onset of convulsions. But if I was a betting woman, I would say they probably fucking did. In 1902, a neighbor of Mary's fell ill and had to be hospitalized, so the woman, Anna Jensen, left her six-year-old daughter, Dorothy, in Mary's care. On the afternoon of March 28th, Dorothy fell ill after playing outside with her friends. Mary said that Dorothy had exhausted herself jumping rope and just kind of overdid it and it made her very sick. But neighbors noticed that Dorothy wasn't just tired, she was convulsing and foaming at the mouth. By the time the town doctor arrived, little Dorothy Jensen was dead. 
on her death certificate under cause of death, the doctor literally wrote, don't know. Like I've seen the photocopy of it. It's in one of the books that I used as a reference. It literally just says, don't know. So let's just recap a little here, shall we? Between 1876 and 1878, Mary, who would have been in her late teens, very early 20s, lost three infants. Could she have done something to them? Sure, but it's just as likely that they died simply because they were babies born in the 1800s. In 1882, when Mary was 25, her four-year-old daughter died while visiting her grandparents of what was determined to be diphtheria. Unless Minnie ate something that Mary had prepared and sent with her, I don't see how she could have been involved in that. Uh, Now, two years later, when Mary was 27 and her surviving child was just two years old and they both fell suddenly ill on the train, I guess that could have been like a little murder-suicide attempt maybe. But again, the symptoms of diphtheria and strychnine poisoning aren't really that similar. So we've got a 27-year-old woman who has watched all five of her children die. That'll fuck you up for sure, for sure. But enough to kill everyone around you? I mean, maybe. Mary's first definitive victim was her 43-year-old husband, J.D. Ambrose, in 1887. Did she kill him because she was in love with his business partner? or because of the $2,000 life insurance policy he had, of which she was the beneficiary. That would be over $50,000 in today's money. So that's a good little chunk of change. Uh, That same year, Mary killed a woman whose husband Mary turned right around and married herself. So that motive is easy enough to pick out, but why did she also kill the woman's infant niece? Like, why? Five years later... Mary killed her own 13-year-old niece with poison tea. Nine months after that, she killed her own baby sister, again with poison tea. Why? Like, why? Five years later, Mary killed her second husband by lacing his dinner with strychnine. Two years after that, in 1900, Mary likely killed a family friend's grandmother and the woman's daughter. Again, why? Two years after that, in 1902, Mary killed the little six-year-old neighbor girl that she was babysitting. For what fucking reason? And then 1903 was the big one. Her brother, his wife, and their three-month-old baby. That's 12 people Mary McKnight was believed to have killed. Four of them children. It didn't take long for the press to catch on, and Mary was dubbed the Michigan Borgia. Lucrezia Borgia was a Spanish-Italian noblewoman in the 1400s and the daughter of Pope Alexander VI. So I didn't know that popes could have families. They can't, right? I don't know. You learn new things every day, but I'm guessing that that's not a thing now and it was a thing in 1400s because I don't think popes have babies, do they? I'm sure so many of you are cringing right now. You guys know I don't know anything about religion. House Borgia was famous in its own right for lots of reasons, but Lucrezia Borgia had been notoriously known throughout history for being a femme fatale. Her weapon of choice? Poison, of course. She even kept it in a little hollow ring that she wore, and she would just flip open the lid of the ring and dump the poison into people's drinks and kill them. Allegedly. Allegedly. 
So as the authorities awaited the results of the testing of Gertie and Ruth Murphy's remains from Ann Arbor, speculations about Mary's motive went wild. Money didn't make a lot of sense. She got $2,000 in life insurance payouts for each of her husband's death, and she no doubt would have benefited financially from her brother John's death since his wife and baby also died, um, leaving his mother to be his next of kin. So there was a money aspect, but that's less than half of the body count, so money as a motive doesn't really make sense in those other seven deaths. One theory was that she killed children because she was jealous she couldn't have her own, which is horrifying, but only a third of the victims were children. So, um, yeah, I mean, why, why if she wanted to kill children, was she also killing adults? One theory was that she had a mania for slaughter. That was, that was the exact quote, that she had a mania for slaughter, which is a term I would like to use. I have a mania for slaughter. You have a mania for slaughter. Not actually doing the slaughtering, but like learning about it, right? Watching documentaries, listening to podcasts, a mania for slaughter. So, I mean, to me, that just sounds like a fancy way to say serial killer, um, which she was. But the theory that's prevailed over the decades, possibly because it's true or possibly just because it makes a good story, is that Mary Murphy McKnight simply liked to put on her black taffeta morning dress, hat, and veil and go to funerals. Irish wakes were more like parties than somber affairs, and Mary loved a good party. Gertie and Ruth's remains tested positive for strychnine, of course. We knew they would, right? And eventually Mary confessed to giving the baby and the baby's parents all strychnine. Here's the confession that she gave. The baby woke up and cried while its mother was gone, and I mixed up a little strychnine in a glass with some water and gave a spoonful to the baby. I didn't mean to harm the little thing at all. I confessed all to the Lord this afternoon, and I feel that he has forgiven me. When Gertrude came home and found the baby dead, she got awfully nervous. She came to me and said, Mary, can't you give me something to quiet me, something that you take yourself? I said that I would, and I really didn't think that it would hurt her if I gave her one of the capsules. She had spasms right after that, and I suppose that it was the strychnine that killed her. I really didn't mean to hurt her. Then John seemed to feel so badly about it, so broken up, that I often thought after Gertie died that it would be better if he were to go too. John was feeling bad one night a couple of weeks after Gertrude died. He came to me and wanted something to quiet him. I had two or three of the capsules on my dresser, and I told him to go get one of them. I didn't mean to hurt him, but I thought that it would soothe him, and then I thought that it would be best if he were to go anyway. He helped himself. I don't know whether he took one or two. Then he went to bed, and by and by he called me. Mother came too, and he began to have those same spasms. I suppose that was the strychnine working. So, kind of unsolicited opinion here, but this is my podcast, so I can do that. I feel like Mary was addicted to strychnine. If it's in a class with cocaine and morphine and nicotine, which are all addictive, maybe she developed the habit after she lost five fucking children, and she built up such a tolerance that these pills she was making out of the strychnine that was sold at the drugstore, maybe she could tolerate them just fine, but for someone who didn't take strychnine on a daily basis— the dose was, like, deadly? And maybe at least where her brother and Gertie were concerned, she really didn't mean to kill them? Or maybe not. Fuck it. 
Maybe she did kill them all on purpose. Who knows? Only Mary knew. So Mary's trial for the murders of John, Gertie, and Ruth Murphy began on December 1st, 1903 and lasted eight days. On December 10th, a jury found her guilty of three counts of murder and she was sentenced to life in prison at the Detroit House of Corrections. She served 18 years of her sentence before being paroled on June 19th, 1920, when she was 67. She died a few years later, and she was not buried on the family plot, which contains the graves of several of her victims. And that is the story of Michigan's Borgia, Mary McKnight, who killed her entire family because she loved a good funeral. Thank you for coming to my Dead Talk. My main source for today was the book Michigan's Strychnine Saint by Tobin T. Book, which is an excellent resource if you want to learn more about this case. As it just so happens, I sell that book at Dead Time Stories. <laughs> uh, you can find, though, a full list of my resources on the So Dead website, but I'm pretty sure that most of the articles that I found really just use Tobin's book as their main resource as well, so it kind of all circles back. All right, time for a little liquid cheese. You don't need it. It's not good for you, but we're going to have some anyways. So I'm really, really trying to keep this true crime themed as long as I can. I'm stretching here, but this is what we're going to do today. Today we're going to talk about ambulances. I want you to tell me how many times you've been in an ambulance and what was the weirdest occasion. So for me, um, my relationship with ambulances started before I was two years old when I broke my leg and had to be rushed to the hospital. The next time I was in an ambulance, I was eighth grade, seventh grade, seventh grade. I was at a party and it was that same fucking leg. We were standing in a group taking a picture. I turned some kind of weird way and my knee just completely dislocated um, we thought my leg was broken. Ambulance had to come. It was a whole thing. So that was my first conscious memory of being in an ambulance. Uh, next one would have been, I was a fully grown woman. My kids were eight and 12, maybe. No, not quite that old. It was before Dax and I got married. So probably like 2008 or nine, somewhere in that range. Anyway, so I was outside. We had a, we lived in a townhouse. We had like a sliding glass door to our little backyard. And I was standing on the steps, cleaning the glass, being productive. And I stepped off the side. I just stepped off the porch. Like there was more of a step there and there wasn't. And I went down and I heard my ankle snap and I felt my ankle snap and I was sure it was broken. I'd had my cell phone like in my pocket, I think. And I went to reach for it and I looked. <laughs> I am not posting this on the website because this will traumatize you so badly. But when I went to look at my hand to grab my cell phone, my pinky finger on my right hand was literally bent in an absolute zigzag. It was the grossest thing in the whole world. It looked like a Z. Like my finger was shaped like a Z. It was horribly gross. I do have a picture. I'm not showing it to you because it's nasty. So yeah, had to go in an ambulance that time. Three times maybe since then? When I had my accident in 2014, 
maybe? 14, that sounds right. Um, so I slipped. I didn't fall, but I slipped on unshoveled ice outside of a Big B coffee. And my fucking knee on my left leg dislocated again completely. I was in the ER for like seven hours while they tried to put that fucker back in place. It was not good times. And then I couldn't walk for like six months. It took six months for me to be able to walk again. Not good times. And then there was another time with some weird like medical stuff that I don't really want to get into because that's boring. But I would have to say the weirdest, the weirdest time was um, the ankle, the, the stepping off the porch, only because my ankle hurt so bad that I had no idea that my finger had twisted up like a pretzel. Um, and I was bruised everywhere. I had, so it was my right ankle and my right hand. And so when I'm trying to use crutches, my hand was too injured to use the crutches and my ankle was too injured to walk and it was just all bad. So nothing super fun there, but I just feel like I've ridden in the back of an ambulance way too many times. And um, and then of course, I've ridden in the ambulance with Austin many, many times when he's had seizures. So that that's not a me thing, but I have been in them for that as well. So um, yeah, my story, not super fun, not exciting, little interesting. The picture's gross, but again, not showing you that. But I bet you guys have some good stories about times that you were in ambulances and the the things that got you put in them. So I'm going to post on the Facebook group, the liquid cheese topic for this episode, which is how many times have you been in the back of an ambulance and what was the weirdest reason? So let me count mine real quick. I've been in an ambulance for myself. Um, one, two, three, four, possibly five times, but at least four. That's a lot, right? It seems like a lot. Anyway, uh, that is it for today. So please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to So Dead wherever you listen. Uh, make sure that you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you would like to support the show, you can check out the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash So Dead Podcast. You get early access to episodes, ad-free episodes, bonus episodes monthly, giveaways, all kinds of stuff going on over there. Um, and then there's also the So Dead Podcast discussion group on Facebook that is pretty cool. So a new episode is coming your way in a couple of weeks. And I just want to remind you, the the episode that comes out in two weeks is the last one before spring break. So I take the month of May off and then I'll be back in June. So yeah, a little spring break action coming up in a minute. So until then, stay safe. Stay sane and keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks. Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, then rank them from best to worst. 
your dedicated hosts, Sarah and Ben, bring you a new episode each week, covering the history of film through a horror lens. From silent to sound and black and white to color, and the social and cultural context surrounding them. Scream Scene is your well-researched, in-depth, and respectful dive into the horror movies of old. Join us, Creatures of the Night, by subscribing to Scream Scene on iTunes. And visit our website, ScreamScenePodcast.tumblr.com. 